0: Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, and cuinos hermes, I am super excited, super, emphasis on super, super excited, Oprah-level excited about our guest today, and uh, you'll see why very soon. I'm going to read his intro. This is Dr. Jeffrey J. Kripal. He is the Associate Dean of the School of Humanities and holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought. I love that there's a razor there. It's not the same kind of razor, but it's still, (laughs) it's Okay. Uh, He is over at Rice University, where he chaired the Department of Religion for eight years and helped create the GEM Program, a doctoral concentration in the study of Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism. That's the GEM. And is the largest program of its kind in the world. He presently helps direct the Center for Theory and Research at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, just south of where I'm at here in the Maksa Reja, the Santa Cruz Mountains. He served as the chair of the board there from 2015 to 2020. That is quite the special place for those of you who are in the know. You know that. Those of you who aren't, look it up. Jeff is the author or co-author of 12 books, eight of which are with the University of Chicago Press. He uh, has also served as the editor-in-chief of the Macmillan Handbook Series on Religion, 10 volumes from 2015 to 2016. Jeff specializes in the study of extreme religious states and the revisioning of a new comparativism, particularly as both involve putting the impossible, in quotes, the impossible, the supposedly impossible, back on the academic table again. We could say the cultural table as well. He is presently working on a three-volume study of paranormal currents in the history of religions and the sciences, Jeff, and the philosophies. Uh, for the University of Chicago Press, collectively entitled The Super Story. We've had the overstory, now we're going to get the super story. Jeff Kripal, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom.
1: Thanks, Nikos. Happy to be here. Yeah,
0: I am super happy to, to have you here because I've actually known about your work for some time. And because I can say this because she she was very public about working with me, but a client of mine, Sarah Beek, I don't know if you remember her from your time at Harvard. Oh, yeah, sure, she, of course. Yeah. She, of course, spoke uh, very glowingly about you and your work. And then it took me a very long time to get to it. And then I finally read The Supernatural, which is a delightful book. Everybody run out and get that one, too. The Supernatural is so good. And I just love how skillful you and Whitley Strieber were and how you handled and it's and it's very relevant now because it is about uh, loosely speaking UFO phenomena, and then I knew when I when I started the podcast I really want to get Jeff Kreipl man I, just, I got to talk to this guy he feels like a soul brother, and I didn't read I wasn't going to read the superhumanities. and I was hoping maybe you would even recommend something else to read because I thought I'm just going to feel like I'm in an echo chamber I had this feeling that it was just going to feel so much like my own my own limited work in academia and it it was. And it wasn't. I mean, so this is so this is the book, everybody. The super humanities, and you definitely handle these things in your own totally unique and awesome way. It's fifty flavors of awesome, really. It's really great. <laughs> and I well, the thing about it is, it's I, I read it as a, a little bit like a love letter, a love letter to humanity, and to the humanities. And the love letter says what a a, a lover might say to their beloved, you are super, more super than you even realize. (laughs) And then at the same time, it's like an open letter to the professors. An open letter saying, asking a question, what would happen if we were to put the super back on the table, as you say? And what what cultural possibilities and what possibilities for individuals as well would would open up? Does that sound like a reasonable characterization of
1: it? It's it's uh, it sounds like you should have written the back certainly the back cover copy, uh, maybe the book because I mean <laughs> that that's a good, that's a beautiful summary of the book actually, and and it it very much is a love letter. I mean that's certainly how it's intended.
0: Yeah. That's how it comes across, and I, and I really, really appreciate it. And it's this revisioning. It's funny because uh, my dissertation was called The Revisioning of Philosophy and was so, so similar. We did a lot of similar moves. We drew from Nietzsche, of course, and drew, drew from examples of the supposedly super. And you draw from religion in particular. And um, you say in the book that the superhuman... Precedes the human. Mm-hmm. I really like that way of getting at it. Can you elaborate that a little bit? The superhuman precedes the human.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah, I mean that both ontologically, but also historically. I, you know, the idea of the human, of course, is fairly modern. Um, humanism is generally uh, seen as something that that came about over the last few hundred years. And I think most of us, at least living in this culture, assume that the human is a natural social animal that, you know, lives entirely in a kind of social plane. And what I mean by the phrase, the superhuman precedes the human is that that's not how our ancestors thought of the human. I mean, they assumed that we came from somewhere else and that there were all of these transcendent components or dimensions to us and that, yes, we live these social uh, biological lives but that's only that 's only a part of of who we actually are so that that 's what I mean by it historically i, I mean ontologically mm, i I think we emerge from this um this other this other realm or this other world and and that that this does pre pre exist us uh and probably post exist us to to <laughs> to to slaughter the english language you know mm-hmm. No, that's, that's the beauty of English.
0: It, it allows for these things, right? Yeah. I, uh, I've grown to appreciate English more than I used to. So this is really interesting. Ontologically, of course, some people might be new to that word, and we're talking about the beingness, that there's something, some kind of super ground yeah. from which we emerge, which we are in some sense identical with, and then into which we will, we will go on, and which, from which we might evolve as well, that there might be a change in us. This is very much like the Marvel comic line, right? That human beings are evolving into the super. And maybe we can get to... Well, it's okay. Why don't we touch on Nietzsche's tightrope there? Um, because I love that you talk so much about Nietzsche. I really love Nietzsche a lot. And uh, so what would it... Do you, that is the story that we sometimes get in the Marvel comics, that human beings are evolving, and then there are these new mutants emerging, and they have powers. Right. And Nietzsche really has this idea. Would you like to just... Go go. Wrap on Nietzsche, brother. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, so let let me wrap on that whole thing. I mean, you know, just to kind of go back a bit. I in the early part of the millennium, I wrote this book called *Esalen: America and the Religion of No Religion*, and it was about the Institute. You know, down the road from you, but but it was really about the whole American counterculture and the rise of a lot of contemporary um, esoteric or or um, alternative movements. And one of them was, you know, as I was finishing that book, I was how old was I? I was I was forty five, actually, as I finished that book, and I found myself becoming obsessed with the X Men. Who, by the way, I was not obsessed with as a kid. I, I was a Spider Man guy, and um, I, the X Men were like this B level kind of, you know, series that didn't it didn't really mean much. It was kind of hokey. And I was like, why am I so obsessed with the X-Men? I was kind of embarrassing. I called it my midlife regression. And I realized, though, that the human potential idea, which is essentially that there's this immense potential that human beings have and that, that parapsychological or, or paranormal experiences are sort of buds or, 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 or beginnings of some kind of evolutionary advance. I realized that that's essentially the X-Men story. And that there's this weird kind of resonance between the human potential movement that that, um, really developed in California in the early 60s and this New York adolescent comic book story that developed at the exact same time, by the way, on on the other coast. And I hadn't really read Nietzsche yet, um, to be honest. I read Nietzsche later because of some grad students, and I realized this was our stuff. I mean, and by our stuff, I mean, this is the humanist. There's nobody more central to the humanities than Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche was basically a mutant and was talking about this evolutionary advance in the Ubermensch or the superhuman um, 150, 140 years ago, I guess. And so I wrote this this chapter called The X-Men Before Their Time. And essentially what I argued is that Actually this, this basic mythos, this idea of evolving superhumans is is very old. Uh and it goes back to Nietzsche actually. It it's not a Marvel comics idea. I mean they they took it very late and of course developed it in their own way, but um it's it's basically ours, uh and it's Nietzschean through and through. Um and that's why when you watch the Marvel movies. I mean, a figure like Magneto, for those, for you Marvelites out there, a figure like Magneto is Friedrich Nietzsche. I mean, you want Friedrich Nietzsche? That's Friedrich Nietzsche. Magneto is Friedrich Nietzsche. And, um, I don't see how you can watch those movies having read your Nietzsche and not see that. I mean, it's just to me mind boggling that people don't, more people don't say that and see that.
0: Well, this is part of the marginalization of philosophy in the culture, I would say. Now, I would agree with you. There is this weird demarcation problem that I that I realize, because I very nearly, uh, I thought it would be such a great thing to come down to Rice and hang out with you and Anne Klein, so I nearly applied to your department. Ugh. But I, I had this little bit of resistance that you were in a department of religion, yeah. And I realized that there is this, just like in science, I'm, I'm referring to this thing in a technical way, the demarcation problem. The scientists are, and the philosophers of science are obsessed with the demarcation between science and pseudoscience. And then I realized, well, you know, there's one between philosophy and religion. Oh, yeah. And it's a weird one. And the way you approach religion is that it is concerned with the big questions oh, that yeah. you would think would belong, you know, what really am I? What's the nature of reality? What happens when I die? How then shall I live? And so I think that's really beautiful. And, but these things are marginalized because religion then is this caricature of itself in the culture. And so is philosophy. This, how many grains are in a heap is what philosophy is. That's, and it's because these things are dangerous. That's where the dangerous wisdom comes from. So dangerous wisdom is about how the, those deep currents, the things that you were talking about included are dangerous because if we really valued our superness we'd be less interested in Ferraris and Amazon and Netflix I mean if you can be an X man why would you <laughs> you would do something different but maybe we could talk about this what you call the the promise of religion and sort of like the the secret and the secret logic of religion that there are these two poles That you talk about, which I would refer to as arts of awareness. You you say extreme asceticism, but I would say these are arts of awareness or techniques of of um, maybe technologies of being. If we could recover the word technology, Uh, I, I don't really go in the Foucault direction because he's just too limited. But and then the other pole is are these anomalous experiences that belong to the philosophical and religious traditions. Can you talk about that? The promise of religion, the secret of religion. Those two poles and what what that how that plays into your book and our culture yeah
1: i mean again just to back up a bit i mean i think this demarcation problem you're referring to you know philosophy has gone in a very anglo uh, analytic direction in the humanities and so we're we're allowed to talk about truth statements and kind of stay on the surface of things but any kind of deep kind of ultimate questioning is is off certainly off the table today in these analytic departments. And so I think that's the, and I think that's your, the, the concern you were picking up is a real one. Um, you know, you,
0: it's also true though, in the continental, you, they've gotten caught in the problem of critique, which we won't go into, but, but there, it, I don't find it to be much more exhilarating. No. Okay. It's still depressing. <laughs> But anyway, it is depressing, continue.
1: but it's it's uh, you know, it's because, you know, the inheritor of Nietzsche became Foucault instead of George Bataille as I, as I as yeah. I say. And you know, they lost the mystical, they lost the ontological and everything just becomes a language game and anyway, that so that's this nerdy philosophical conversation. Your question really so when I talk about the promise of salvation I'm I'm quoting Martin Riesbroth who's a was a German sociologist of religion and I'm not talking about a specific religion I'm not a I'm not a religious person and that you should believe x y and z but I think the whole history of religions from a kind of comparative sweep gives a very clear witness to this superhuman nature and the way you manifest our superhumanity it's not by being a nice person and living a healthy, happy life. It's actually, you know, asceticism. It's a discipline. You you discipline the, the body and the mind and perhaps something goes horribly wrong in your life. And it's in these mo in these moments of ascetic or traumatic um um margin or gap that this, this superhumanity manifests itself. And that's the promise of salvation for, for resprout is is that you don't actually get to the salvific expansion of consciousness, except through these intense ascetic regimes that are really mimicking, I think, these traumatic moments um, that, that happen spontaneously. So for example, the, to give you a Christian example, I mean, I think a lot of listeners come from a Christian background. You know, the the resurrection is this anomalous kind of mystical moment that does not happen without the trauma of of the crucifixion and and this horrible suffering. And that was the key to a lot of medieval mystical piety as well, is you don't you don't get to the mystical experience except through the suffering, except through the 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 celibacy and the obedience and the, you know, the, the ascetic behavior. And, um, that's so not cool today. (laughs) I mean, you know, people want to be healthy and happy and whole and, and that just kind of flattens out the human into this social animal that, that I think is, is part of our depression or part of our our problem. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of nuance there, though, because, uh, so, but first of all, I, I, I want to return to that, because that gets into, I think, a very interesting thread, and there's a lot of nuance. What we're, what we're saying, though, and what you're I, I, kind of getting from the book is we should be clear that religion, in the deep sense you're talking about, is it's not, or at least not restricted to history, society, reason, politics, economics, but it really it doesn't exist without this superness. And then the humanities, as we understand them, so what our culture does a lot of is metaphysical policing. We won't allow this, we won't allow that. And so these things that are central to the philosophical and religious traditions of the world and also to broader, the arts, the, the artists get pulled in with the, the human, what we think of broadly as the humanities, we don't get to understand our humanness or the nature of reality if we exclude these, no, and this is part of the problem. That
1: no, and that that which we exclude is precisely that which means the most, and so of course we're in a, a, a moment of depression. And you know, one of the things I often think about is the real, the origin source of the Academy. Of course, is the Academia, the the you know the Grove outside of Athens where Plato taught and. The key to a lot of Plato's thinking was the, was the parable of the cave. And, and it's the idea that you, you actually don't trust the senses. You don't trust human reason as just human reason. Somebody has to be yanked out of the chains, out of the cave and, and put up into the sunlight and then comes back. And of course, none of the cave dwellers believe the person. Um, so there there's a very distinct sense of of two levels of truth you know there's the there's the level in the cave and the shadows, and then there's the level of of the light outside and they they cannot they don't go together so well and to me, that's the origin point of of the humanities is that sort of mystical sense of of imminence and transcendence, and what we've done is we've just cut off the the sunlight right we've just cut off the transcendence and it's all immanence now and and it's it, it, you know it's we're stuck in the cave essentially
0: and this is part of the big problem why this is so important for those of you listening this is so important for our culture right now because as you point out some of the best ideas the most vitalizing the most world changing ideas have come from people working with This kind of polarity, you know, how do I educate myself? Because I think I would say I would call it educate, but you could say discipline oneself so that this, this superness can come through. And given the scale of the problems we face, we need super ideas. We don't need more of the same, which seem they seem super because, you know, Elon Musk says it's super and he's going to launch a rocket to show us how super he is. But those are not truly super ideas we, because he doesn't have this same kind of uh, training, right, that is t- generally speaking required, although it can happen accidentally, of course, as well.
1: I guess, you know, what, I, I mean, so you can read the superhumanities as a love letter, but you can also read it as Crabby Jeff, you know, just, cra- I'm really crabby about a lot of things in that book. And, one of the things I'm so crabby about is why are, why are we ignoring the humanists? You know, why do we think scientists and people in technology and computers are going to solve everything? I mean, that's nutty. I'm sorry, that's just nutty. And the people with, with the real questions, and I think with some of the answers, are in fact the humanists and the historians and the anthropologists and the philosophers. But none of those people get hired, Nikos. No, you know, nobody, nobody. NASA doesn't hire any anthropologists to talk about the potential of alien life. They just hire more astrophysicists and rocket scientists. I'm like, well, that's not going to go anywhere, you know. Good luck with that. If you want to know what happens when one culture meets another, well, talk to an anthropologist. Talk to a historian. If you want to know about ultimate questions, talk to a philosopher, a real philosopher, not an analytic philosopher, a philosopher. And, of course, they don't, and they won't. Um, but I can assure you that these scientists and these engineers are talking to humanists and historians, you know, on the side. And they're human beings, too, by the way. They know. I mean, <laughs> you know, I often joke that the sciences are just subdivisions of the humanities. And what I mean by that is I've never met a scientist who wasn't a human being, ever. And I don't know, maybe you have, but I haven't, and so all scientific knowledge is a function of our humanity, all of it, every single bit of it, including all the math, all the technology, it's all human and and that's what I mean by the superhumanities i don't I don't mean you know your undergraduate major in English literature. I mean all of human knowledge is is really what i what I'm intending there,
0: yeah. Why, well, then, why did you not stick with the supernatural? Well, so, I, I mean, I know that this book is about the superhumanities, yeah. right? But I guess what what I'm imagining, like, let's say that uh, Mackenzie Scott says, "Kreipl, I like the cut of your jib. I'm going to write you a check." Now, you can either you can either start the Institute of the Superhumanities, or you can start the Institute of the Supernatural, sort of akin to Princeton's Institute of Advanced Studies but which one would you choose? Is, why why not stick with the supernatural?
1: Well, that's a good question. And by the way, when I say the supernatural, we we have two spaces in there, right? Yeah. It's the super and then super, supernatural. Yeah. And to me that's yeah. complete that's completely different than the supernatural as we normally conceive it. That's right. So, my supernaturalism, which is really what it is, uh with that space in there, um look I, I mean <laughs> I already wrote that book um, Nikos I mean th- this is another book and but the other answer is always the sitsim laban. it's the it's the situation in life of the author and I when I wrote the superhumanities certainly when I published it I had spent 3 years in a dean's office in a school of humanities and I had watched the politics of the humanities in a school that that understands itself primarily in STEM terms, you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And I deeply admire and love all those disciplines, and I wanted to sort of understand how the humanities fits into this order of knowledge, to, to use a, a Foucauldian language. Um, And so I was just, I was trying to speak to, this is the love letter part. I was trying to speak to my colleagues about, Hey, here's what you have. Here's what your, your ancestors did. Here's how you can speak to each other. I wasn't talking about the supernaturalism that I wanted to get across with the book with Whitley. Um, So it's, it was a different project is all I'm saying, Nikos. And yeah, you know, (laughs) again it's partly a joke but you know both messages were ignored um you know you you i you always say you know with every book you the author at least i think i I should speak for myself i think with every book i write the metaphysical structures of the entire universe shift slightly right that's right but actually what happens is nothing (laughs) it's (laughs) absolutely nothing it's just like Throwing a Kleenex off the Grand Canyon and listening for an echo. Well, guess what? You don't hear one. Um, so- but Nietzsche couldn't,
0: Nietzsche couldn't sell his books. And look at the influence. I mean, you, you just touched on that, right? I mean, this is a hugely influential figure who couldn't sell it. He had to self-publish and, you know, it was a mess. And they're really good books. They're also really challenging. And geez, the superhumanities is very accessible compared to, of course, Nietzsche is kind of accessible on a surface level. He's, he's very demanding ultimately. So so maybe that's it. Maybe,
1: maybe you're the next Nietzsche, the American Nietzsche. Yeah, but maybe I have to die. I mean, that's, that's, that's a a thought. I mean, I, yeah, I do, I do, I do think about this a lot, not, not dying now. That's another issue. Um, but you know, when I wrote the Eslin book, one of the big questions that people had is how do we do this again? How do we do the counterculture again? How do we how do we do the beat poets? How do we do the psychedelics? How do we do the rock and roll? How do we how do we do, do the the Asian or Buddhist or Hindu you know uh, mystical revolution? And my answer was always, well, you don't, you know, you you've got to wait. It, the 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 we, we the Germans have this this term Zeitgeist and 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 i think it's true i think it's an absolutely correct intuition that somehow the social surround the historical context has to be ready for the ideas and 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 when those two things meet in a in a really profound way there's an explosion and and one of the things that i often point out is that listen all of the ideas that became Eslin or the counterculture or the human potential world, they all existed in the forties and fifties, all of them. And, but nobody was listening. You know, yeah. th- there was no, there was no culture to receive them. And what happened in the sixties is a youth culture uh, in different, different parts of the world suddenly was ready to hear these older men and women talk about these ideas they've been talking about for decades and suddenly, kapow, and you add some l s d in there and you add some some mescaline and and it just like goes nuts and well, we've got that we've got that part it's coming we're having a psychedelic
0: resurgence, aren't we yeah, but we don't
1: have we don't have the other we don't maybe we no. do you know maybe maybe with the climate crisis and the kind of nihilism that's in the culture, the, the the youth, the the generations, the youth generations are ready for something else. I don't know. I don't know, Nikos. I mean, I work with those young people all the time. Um, I, I think personally, I think that the digital world has, has had a profoundly negative effect uh, on this. We've talked about this earlier, but it has this sort of distracting kind of effect and, Certainly in the 60s and 70s, there wasn't these, these distractions and things could be much more focused. Um, yeah. So I don't know, well, that's another question.
0: There is the question of how we best serve it because, you know, I often point out there's... Take a look at these two contrasting uh, icons, Socrates, and these guys illustrate the demarcation problem so well because Socrates is the iconic philosopher in the dominant culture and this dude was pretty religious. Now, he asks for, he's put on trial, and he says, you know what, I'm doing a service here, and I think you should give me a free lunch. And they kill him. Now, Buddha, who was not very, I really just don't see him as religious. He seems far more philosophical and even more radical as a philosopher in some ways. Um, And Obey writes about this, right, that his version of, of enlightenment is even bigger or more radical than the Socratic, Platonic one. And he says, well, I think you should give me a free lunch, and people do it. And the first universities grow around this movement, and you know he gets this he gets a, a following something he did right, and it, it was probably a lot to do with the, the, the quality of his being, and maybe he wasn't as irritating I mean I see him as more awake than Socrates that's part of it, yeah but so this and I wasn't. I understand as I as I was trying to say. This is a, this was a nuance point. It is a nuance point. Whatever that I understand the context that you're writing. This really needed. This letter is important to the humanities, and to the humans. This love letter. The thing I was just bringing up is that as you're moving the project forward and you're thinking of opening a school of the superhumanities, why, why not say the school or even like let's say Mackenzie said to she, she said to me, hey, I like this dangerous wisdom stuff, you know, and uh, I'm going to I've got a couple universities lined up. You're going to have your own college with an endowed chair. Now, you can have the college of the superhumanities or you could have the college of mountains and rivers. With an institute of the supernatural, because I love that criple, and I say, man, I love me some cripal too but i 'm trying to get to this idea that that as we move forward, you know is there a way to if because if you have a college of mountains and rivers, then you know you 're going to have ecologists there, but you also should have some artists and poets and other types and philosophers and so on. How can we make sure that we are moving forward in in a school that teaches our superness? that says scientists you need to come in here because again you're not going to get the best ideas with this regular mind. Of course you think it's such a great mind because you can you know you can put rockets on the moon and but that mind is actually not the best mind according to our own traditions Mm -hmm. that there are states of consciousness styles of thinking that are radically different and you just don't have contact with them.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, you're, you should write the book, Nikos. I mean, that that's thats the point. I mean, you know a lot of philosophers of science, I'm sure you read, and historians of science, they'll often point out, I think absolutely correctly, that science is really good at saying how things work. It's the behavior of the natural processes that the science is really good at. But what the natural processes are, they don't have a clue, and they frankly don't care. And, um it's the philosophers and, and the humanists who actually care what these things are. And, and you know, this is the ontological question again. And so I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, if I had to choose, first of all, I'd probably choose the school of the superhumanities because I think it's cooler. I think it's a cooler, it's a cooler phrase. I, you know, I want, I want to be in a school that teaches people how to be mutants, essentially. I mean, I, I want to be Professor yeah. X to, be, to re- be really blunt about it. Um, yes I mean but who would it I mean this is the thing it's like oh my god you want you want to get you want to get these things like inked into the culture just do this you know so uh, why yeah. we don't do that I don't you know it does actually come down to money by the way um, and and donors and people funding things and not funding other things and I'll, I'll give you an example Nikos and I've talked about this elsewhere but I had a long conversation once with one of the the real leaders of psychedelic research in the country and and you know people who who are given psilocybin in particular often will have a profound mystical experience of the nature of reality I mean they'll have an ontological revelation and it'll blow their all their categories it'll blow their minds and when I read the psychiatrists writing about, and they were always psychiatrists. I was like, well, why, why don't you just hire someone who actually knows something about mystical states? Why, why do you rely on psychiatrists to tell you? And what the person said to me was, we actually tried to do that. And the grant agency cut it all out. You know, they wouldn't hire, they wouldn't give money to hire anybody, but real scientists. Wow, yeah, that really shows. I I think, so this is not just, this isn't an abstract problem, and I'm not sharing that story. This isn't a conspiracy theory. It's an actual problem in our culture that we only value a certain kind of knowledge that is technological or pharmaceutical or scientific. We do not value knowledge that arises from altered states and that involves uh, ontological claims. We simply don't value it.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's well. That's also again. It's the dangerousness of it. It's dangerous. It's threatening to the to the to the way that we're I think so kept domesticated. I think
1: so. It's very yeah. It's very I mean, dangerous.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I really think I've I've said this many times in different episodes and and written about it that we really shouldn't leave science to scientists. That that it should be considered silly. To run scientific experiments or to do scientific work without in, including people from the arts and the humanities and ordinary citizens yeah. who are just might be living nearby, uh, it just seems that um, that's that's the way that's it. Also, is part of a, a more pluralistic science, well, and you, you can see very serious discussions of that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, science. One of the wonderful things about the sciences is that you know they're 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 making universal truth claims. <laughs> They're they're not talking about the behavior of matter, you know, in Nepal in the in the sixth century BCE. They're talking about the behavior of matter at the first microseconds of the Big Bang. I mean, oh my God! They're like making massive universal truth claims, and they're doing it really well. And um, and so I think we, as humanists, we need to learn from that, and we we need to understand that as long as we keep complaining about. The localisms and the contextualisms and the constructivisms or this or that—we're just going to be ignored because they're just—they're just knocking the socks off of this thing or knocking the ball out of the park, and we're not even up to bat. Um, so that's that's on us, Nikos, is what I'm trying to say. So the super yeah. humanities was a love letter, but it was also a profound complaint about. Look, this is actually our fault. We we did this. Let's own the problem because we're not going to resolve this thing until we actually get get at get at what was responsible for it.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, the crisis we face is philosophical. I mean, that's how. I mean, I just look at it differently, right? That you have a philosophy of science and you have philosophies running the culture because, for me, philosophy is how we do things. Yeah. So if you, if your view of how we do science and the metaphysical assumptions is is bad philosophy or limiting, that it's going to be problematic. So yes, absolutely, I I really feel that we did this. Let me, in the spirit of of uh, comparative religions, let me invoke Festivus, and uh, of course in Festivus you have the airing of grievances. So Kreiple, I got some problems with you. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. These are these are these are more <laughs> loving questions. <laughs> uh, but so, but at one point in the book you said something, and and. Uh, I, I di- haven't had a chance to, to look at uh, you know a huge amount of your work, but I, I saw it at least in one other place that I noticed. Uh, but uh, or something similar. I mean, this sentence is unique, probably, to the superhumanities, But you said that uh, you said an abusive jerk can be enlightened. Now, so as a philosopher, uh, that seems to me to be a false claim. And I wonder if this doesn't open up some places where we could... This is very nuanced. This is not easy stuff to talk about. But, okay, in what sense does the super actually become its own kind of distraction and confusion? Does it further confusion? Because, so from the standpoint of, let's say, if if I'm holding up a gold standard like Buddha, okay? Yeah. And I know he's partly myth, okay, but... Uh, I like also this This touches on Joseph Campbell. He used to say, well, let's not talk about myths. Let's talk about a mythology. There has to be a holistic ecology that is metaphoric of human potential. And so what Buddha presents is an education. And he's not alone. There are other traditions. I think Socrates would agree with this too. Socrates would say, look, if you are an abusive jerk and your spiritual community falls apart because you're an abusive jerk, or just in general, people are complaining about it, maybe what you should conclude Is you're not enlightened because the view that Socrates would have is that you do the wrong thing because you don't have wisdom. And Buddha would say the same thing that you do the wrong thing because you're not wise. And that unfortunately, because especially this is part of our our situation, right? We are so spiritually starved that we have like a kind of soul scurvy. And somebody gets a bite of lemon, and oh my God, it's an ontological change. And they they don't realize that they're completely still malnourished. And they really don't understand what they've experienced. They think they do. And, and they may think that, like even, maybe you have read uh, Hakuin's, the one-hand clapping guy, the great Zen master and philosopher. In his spiritual autobiography, he, he's really good about identifying this, which the Zen tradition tries so hard. They've got this whole koan curriculum to try to deal with this problem. He said, when I had my first satori, I thought nobody since Buddha had been so enlightened. I mean, I was the second coming, man. I was Maitreya. And he went around challenging people in Dharma combat, right, which luckily they had that tradition so you could check yourself. And he kept winning. And so he kept thinking he was enlightened. Right. And then finally he encountered somebody who put him in his place. And then it took him many, many, many years, he said. Many, many big, big, big satori's and, and countless little ones. So I guess what I'm getting at is there's this. There's a little bit of separation that I understand how you're separating the ethical, the intentional, and so from the experience. But by isolating the experience, we could get too hooked on it and not realize that it's it's not as useful if we're not cultivating wisdom in, in relationship. If it's not an educational process, can you
1: reflect at all on this? No. And we're yeah. <laughs> that jerks, abusive jerks can be enlightened. I, I can reflect a lot on it, Nicos, yes. and share with you my. The reasons for why I wrote that, but but also yeah. my, my own my own doubts and my own struggles. I mean, so I was you know I was trained in the eighties and early nineties, and we were just coming out of the the sixties and seventies, frankly. And a lot of I was in the comparative study of religion, and a lot of my friends had come out of these essentially these guru movements, and they had. Um, they had been touched I mean sometimes literally by the guru and sent into the stratosphere. they had had Kundalini awakenings they had had enlightenment experiences they had had all kinds of experiences sometimes by the literal touch of a of a guru or the guru just looks at them so clearly the <laughs> clearly the guru is is um, doing something or or at least that was the experience of my friends but Later these gurus. It was discovered. Were also doing other things. They they were having sexual intercourse with with some of their disciples, and they were frankly lying about it very often. And I watched um, I watched my friends, and by friends I really mean friends. I don't mean I don't mean people I knew. I mean friends. I watched them either affirm the kind of devotional perspective of the community that the guru can't possibly do anything bad because the guru is the guru. And I also saw people who were essentially debunkers saying, well, because the guru did X, Y, or Z, there's nothing to A, B, and C. There's nothing to the teaching. And I was just like, well, both of those things are clearly false. So clearly, the guru is doing amazing things and sending people into these altered states of consciousness. And the guru is doing really bad moral things that we consider really awful and abusive. And both things are true. Can't can't we just admit, you know, the, the sort of phenomenology of what's happening here? Do we have to like fall into denial one, one way or the other? And so, you know, this was my debate, with particularly with a friend named Bill Barnard. And Bill's still teaching. He teaches at SMU. And we published a book together called Crossing Boundaries. And it was really along this debate on whether essentially mystical experiences are moral or immoral or amoral. And the position I took, which was in some ways a rhetorical position, but also an honest one, was that human beings can have mystical experiences in completely amoral contexts like say a car accident or a heart attack or something but they can also have mystical experiences because of immoral events like sexual abuse or physical abuse and and they learn to dissociate and later that these result in these really positive experiences um and bill took the position that took I think what's your position that a truly enlightened state is is a profoundly moral state as well and that you couldn't possibly hurt another human being if you were in such a state and i just i've always expressed skepticism about that um it doesn't mean i know that i'm right i hope i'm wrong i i hope that a truly enlightened state is a truly moral state but my suspicion is that morality itself is a function of individuality and our social egos and that if we're in a truly enlightened state where that is beyond the person or beyond the the social ego that, that speaking about morality is, is, is not even relevant anymore. Um, and I, I see this reflected in a lot, of, a lot of figures, including, by the way, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, who wrote a lot about beyond good and evil, by the way, as we both know, uh, and, and was a misogynist in many ways and had some views that I think very few of us would want to accept or, or affirm. Um, but he was still brilliant. And I think he was still enlightened in some ways, and so what I'm trying to say is, people can be enlightened in these spiritual ways, and they can also do really bad things, and that those are two completely different levels that that function can function independently. That that's what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. No,
0: I follow you. I think that where this is the place where I feel like there's this there's a fragmentation happening yeah. and i and the spirit of what you're pointing to is is holism and the fragmentation is the mystical experience yeah a, a mystical experience isn't enlightenment you're not awake fully awake it's that you have a, had a glimpse and again maybe your ontological doors have been blown off in a certain sense and it's only to say look just don't say you're enlightened you can say i've i've had a huge ontological shift and now I can do certain things that could help you on your journey, but I'm not enlightened, and I'm not likely to make you enlightened.
1: You, yeah, you know, I mean, like, wouldn't you,
0: it just be better?
1: If that's how you want to define enlightenment, then I I agree. Of course, of course, that's true. <laughs> uh, it's just, that's actually not what actually happens, though, historically. I mean, communities claim that so-and-so is fully enlightened and so-and-so does really bad things and right, but, the, but that's cuz he, he said splits. so right i mean this this
0: is what i'm trying to get at is that if hakuin had not met somebody who who was further along in their spiritual life he would have said i'm the greatest person since the buddha right. and that's what some of these gurus have said right right so i mean the same people we're talking about because i have some in mind that i think are probably overlapping with some of the ones you have in mind and that was their claim I am as as enlightened as Buddha, right. and so Haku his his spiritual autobiography is saying if you don't know any better, and then if you look at his commentary on the koan curriculum, which is the spiritual common law for those of you, is sort of like just how we have common law where you know, there's a, an instance that illustrates justice so well that we don't we don't have to pass a law. So there's a spiritual common law. These these kind of iconic moments that illustrate awakening. He's very clear in his commentary that this is the kind of this is what is going to happen when you have a big satori you're going to think you know everything and this is my own experience even is that knowing, and not that I went around because of, of reading Hakuin and Buddha and Socrates I really was able to say okay this feels huge but I know I'm not as enlightened as the Buddha and I, do, I don't feel that that was some self-limiting in like no I really was Magneto and I shut it off no I was not And so, somehow or other, if we just have the idea that maybe there's a lot more, and this is the difference to about Buddha, is now, of course, we would never know if Buddha had, uh, you know, this would have all been covered up by now, but certainly it's the case that he offers something that you don't tend to see in these gurus, which is so much information about the nature of the mind, how it works, how you can investigate it, and in medicine, for the traumatized people. I mean, this is the guy who invented compassion meditation, which today even our science is saying, wow, that's very amazing. And he did it for people who were having a, a difficult time. He didn't run around touching people and turning them on. And then there's the dialogue, which I think is maybe relevant to your project. Do you, Maybe you, do you recall reading it, or did you read the dialogue with Kavata? No. It's the one where Kavata tells him, he said, he's, he's in Nalanda, and he said, you know, Nalanda's a really cool city, Buddha. And people love you here. <laughs> but you know what would really, really get you a lot more followers, and they would have just even more faith? Get one of your students to do some uh, super stuff. You know, like, you know, show some superpowers. And Buddha said, no, I don't have my students run around showing off superpowers. And as it happens in these dialogues, Kavada keeps pressing, Buddha keeps saying no, and then he finally has to explain to this guy. He says, look, there's three kinds of miracles, and one of them, I don't know why he breaks it down this way, but one is telepathy, and the other one is all the other superpowers, all the cities, right? You know, you go to different dimensions, you can split yourself into multiple and come back, all this other crazy stuff that shouldn't be able to happen, and Buddha says, yeah, that's all that stuff. Now, I don't have people do that, and the reason, he gives a, he gives only two reasons. I think one reason is is that, it, you know, its it, I think it's a distraction. But he gives the reason that you talk about in your book in relationship to uh, the difference between something that's truly miraculous or not, and that is that people will never believe that the practice of philosophy could give you those cities. They just won't believe it. They'll say it came from a magical plant or a magical amulet. Something made it possible for, for me to read your mind, and it couldn't be that the practice of philosophy would do that. And so what's the third miracle? The third miracle is an education, a holistic education that teaches you how to proceed in the direction of superness in a way that keeps you in attunement with wisdom, love, and beauty, which somehow he feels are part of the ontological reality. I think that's where the goodness comes in, right? If, if we suddenly felt that the universe was basically good and love is this energy, right, that's through there, then we might feel that there's a basic goodness that is us and that would have to be the expression of the... Enlightened, truly enlightened person. I don't know. Okay, so that's my. Well,
1: but, but, Nikos, I mean, this conversation we're having is the superhumanities. <laughs> that, that's, all, that's all. I'm saying It's like, yes, yeah. I mean, we can agree and disagree about all these different things. And again, I hope I hope you're right. I hope your vision of things is is correct. I'm really I'm really just saying, look, people have superhuman states under many conditions and some yes, of them are true. amoral and some of them are immoral and can we deal with that can we can we deal with that or not i'm i'm not saying that this is the enlightened or final state or that it should yes. be um so but but even to have this conversation you know you and i have to presume a set of principles that are not presumed in the academy as we both know
0: yes that's right.
1: Yeah. And the other place I would go if if we were again we were in a school of superhumanities and we, we had the opportunity to do this, I I do not agree with the religious position that these things should be ignored for the sake of mm-hmm. some contemplative goal. I know that's the, the shtick. I know that. Listen, I, I grew up in one of these contemplative traditions and I read a lot of Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and, and Sufism and you, you name it. That's virtually always the, the message. I just disagree with it. I just think it's wrong. And I, yeah. and the reason I think it's wrong is I think these extraordinary things happen for a reason. I think they're trying yeah. to talk to us and I think we should listen. And mm-hmm. I think to the extent we ignore them, we do ourselves a great disservice. And, yeah. and um, that doesn't mean I think they're ultimate, Nikos.
0: No. I Well, yes, Jeff, I, I, I agree with you. I think, But the, the nuance there is that they're trying to help balance that problem, that, that we need wisdom to handle them. And the communication might be nothing more than some of the synchronicities in our lives, which are like little kisses from Sophia, wisdom, telling us you're on the right track. Just keep going. Right. And the idea is that maybe sometimes what happens is I get precognition or I have a big kundalini awakening. I think I'm so fantastic. And then
1: I kind of I'm done. Well, I get to just go out and be super. But the other thing people do is ignore them. And yes, that I think is a big mistake yeah and I think this contemplative we, argument that ignore them because they it's not enlightenment or because you need to keep meditating. I just think it's wrong I, and I know again, yeah. I know that that's what the traditions say I, I, but I'm not a religious person he goes i'm not i'm not a zen master i'm not I'm not a Sufi teacher, and I don't want to be um I want to yeah. be the the crabby you know superhumanist who says yeah but um you know, and I want to do it in a in a in a school that, that, that um, supports that kind of inquiry. That that's really the argument.
0: No, no, I agree with you, and and even I think what I'm trying to say is that it's not necessarily just ignore them because these things are often they're used by the the, the students to guide them. And well, the
1: traditions the themselves were profoundly hypocritical. Um,
0: they are, but I think again, it's because of the danger, right? Because the issue is that a little bit of wisdom can be well, very dangerous. Well, the traditions
1: and, will say, ignore the, ignore that, ignore the man behind the curtain. But then they'll tell you story after story after story, and like, come on, which, which is it? You know? Yeah. And that's what I mean by hypocritical. And yeah. a historian of religions or a comparativist can say that. I, I just, say, yeah, it's it's fine that's That's obvious, but someone within the tradition can't say that. they can't say, "You know the tradition's real hypocritical here it It speaks from both sides of its mouth, uh, but it does and and i don't mean I don't mean this tradition or that tradition. I mean all of them and And that's what again I mean by the superhumanities is can't we talk about that? And you know what? Maybe this funny professor Kripel guy, maybe he's just wrong. Maybe he's just full of it on X, Y, and Z. Maybe. I, I mean, I I don't know. I, I'm just doing the best I can. Um, no. But you're never going to find that out unless we have that conversation.
0: Yeah. No, I agree with you. No, this is, and again, this is loving. This is not real. No. I'm not trying to be grumpy with you in return it's okay. because I really love what you're doing. It doesn't feel um, grumpy, but
1: even if it were grumpy, it's fine. That's what That's, yeah. that's what the conversation becomes.
0: Yeah, no. So now I'm not religious either. That's why there was even, I was, and it's so great to hear you say that. I didn't, it's not like I thought, oh, this Kripal, he must be really religious that he's in a department of religion. But like, I'm I'm confessing, I still felt, since I wanted to, since I felt I was a philosopher, I felt a little weird going to a department of religion, even though uh, you and Anne Klein, I think, are so interesting. And so, but let's talk a little bit about how then. Uh, a, a person who is not interested in in be, being religious or being a Zen master, how in the world did you wander from a perfectly good American-trained humanities guy into crazy? <laughs> Why are you in the crazy territory? How did this happen?
1: Yeah. Well, the short answer is just by taking people seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, one of the things I get asked a lot is, well, what is the moral impulse behind all this? And I say, it's just human beings. You, you're taking their experiences as goads of philosophical reflection. You're not dismissing mm. them. You're not ignoring them. And, you know, the, the common academic speak is, I believe that you believe that. Right? Yeah. Which is snarky and right. <laughs> dismissive to to, like... I mean, come on! <laughs>
0: <laughs> I believe that you believe. Yeah. anybody who, <laughs> yes.
1: anybody who's had an experience is just going to roll their eyes at that point and go, "Oh my God, that is that's just a rejection." And yeah. So that's the short answer. the the, the longer answer, and he goes, "Is you know, I I started out very religious. I I uh, was Roman Catholic. I, I I'm I'm very religious today, but I don't have a religion." And what what I mean by that is I want to ask ultimate questions, but I don't think that any particular religion has the answers or has all the answers. Maybe they have part of the answer, maybe not. Maybe we create the answers by being part of the religion. You know, there's this image of we're all walking up the same mountain by different paths. I actually don't think that. I think we're walking up different mountains but more than that, I think we're actually creating the mountain as we walk up it. So, I, you know, there's a kind of radical um, constructivism that's at the root of my questions. But but it's not just constructivism in the Foucauldian sense. It's a kind of ontological claim that we're actually creating these realities as we participate in them and as we walk up, walk, walk them, as it were. Um so in my mind I'm just I'm just a human being asking questions of all of the cultures and religions I know and I'm not putting one of those religions or cultures I'm not prioritizing any one of them as having all the answers and I think that's very simple and very kind of obvious. I also think it's very radical and very dangerous to go to go back to your your adjective. I think it's profoundly dangerous because what it essentially means is there is no way to and there and there shouldn't be a way to argue that one human community is better than another human community. Okay mm-hmm. Well, but that's the basis of our whole world. and frankly, of all of our religion all of our religions argue that they they yeah. do. And and all of our nation states argue that and they build borders and walls and and have guns and and commit vi- massive violence to to support that. So this is incredibly dangerous thing to do and I don't say that lightly. I don't say that as a r- rhetoric. I understand that and I've said for years that our ancestors you know, ended their lives in prisons and towers and were melted in the market square. Let's just, let's be clear about this. Let's not be, let's let's not be naive. And, you know, you mentioned Socrates. Well, they killed him. Okay. They killed him because he was asking difficult questions that they didn't want to think about. Um, So I don't, I don't, I don't honor culture or or society or, or you know or any or anything or anyone here. It's it's a kind of it's a kind of dangerous kind of inclusivism, as it were.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, we have to somehow be able to get there. There are some non-dualities that might be active there. One, it might be the non-duality of discovery and creation. Well, because obviously, people don't have the experience that they simply created what they experienced it's like it has a greater reality it feels like a discovery so there's my and then there's a non-duality of the individual and the well
1: you know my joke about non-duality which by the way i i happen to agree with i mean i I think what i'm arguing is a kind of non-duality but like the the joke is well where exactly does does reality stop being Mm non-dual you know is it pakistan is it afghanistan is it turkey like where, where exactly do, do things suddenly become different? And of course, the answer, my answer, is nowhere. It's it's non dual all the way through, whether you realize it or not. But again, that's a um, that's a position that that I don't think is is commonly articulated.
0: Yeah. Hmm. So in the in the present, I mean, it's interesting how. Uh how much resistance there is to taking a, a, the, there's a razor's edge here in yeah. that to to use Hakuin again as as an example but you really it, like him, it I I I love that he's so honest about that <laughs> and I love that it seems to fit the experience that when you have these big satoris you, I think you really do feel and it's even um even my experience too of the psychedelic community is that you know pe- people work with these medicines it's they, they really feel that th- th- this is it i I have I've experienced ego death, I've had cosmic consciousness, and I don't really see the same I, I, don't, I don't really I'm sorry so the but there's a razor's edge there of i i'm taking your experience seriously because I know i I know I've been there and at the same time what Hakuin is saying, we still need to be able to somehow critique each other's experience correct it, it, so there's some place where i'm taking it seriously and at the same time can we say okay well really <laughs> really where's it at and what are the consequences going to be of that in the world well
1: this is again the superhumanities this is exactly what i'm talking about this is the conversation yeah. you're doing it yeah Okay, we're, well, let's see. I written, everybody read
0: the book. You'll
1: be doing it. Well, you're just doing well, the thing. Well, doing but, is, but not everybody can do it. You can do it, Nikos, because you're trained to do it already and you want to do it. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a story here that I think is hopeful. I had a graduate student come to me once. This is, oh God, decade and a half ago, maybe. And this student was really troubled, and his problem was he feared that he just thought whatever he was reading. Okay. Okay. That was his concern. And I was like, well, okay. Why did you read this book? Well, I wanted to, I, I thought there was something there. Why didn't you read this other book? Well, I don't think there's, I'm like, so (laughs) what you're reading is in fact, what you think. And you agree with this person because this reflects your own, your own position. It's like yeah, and I'm like, well, then you're not thinking just whatever you're reading. You're actually reading what you're thinking. It's it's the other way around, and I, I think there's a lot of this in in our our lives. Is that you know? And but the problem, Nico, is that people don't read anymore. Uh-huh. And, and I mean that. I mean that quite well. I mean that literally. I mean they don't read books and they you know they read internet or 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 uh, social media posts which are very short and very superficial they don't read tough thinkers and and um i don't mean that universally of course but as a general observation i think it's pretty accurate and as a result we can't have these conversations is what i'm trying to say
0: Yeah, there's a lot of shallowness because I think, yeah, I think people do read, but you're right. It's what they read. And, and, and as, since everybody's got a book, a podcast and a life coaching practice, there's all this self-publishing that is not at a very, and there too, a lot of that seems to come out of, I had a big experience. I know what I'm talking about. Whereas Socrates would say, look, man, I, I'm not telling anybody what I don't know. I am not wise enough. And our temptation is to say, but look how wise I am
1: um yeah i, I think a lot, yeah. don't you think i'm sorry to interrupt you but don't you think no, a lot of the attraction of social media is the illusion that everyone's special
0: and that oh yeah yeah we want to be paid just for being ourselves yeah i want to be i want to be paid to just be me yeah and, I, and because i'm fantastic
1: and because i can publish this it's somehow true and mm-hmm. of course if you're in an academic environment you're constantly being challenged by your peers and when you publish something you publish something to be critiqued you know to be rejected and then to be nuanced and you're constantly adjusting to whatever your peers are are saying to you and and there's a profound respect i think certainly in my academic world for expertise for for professionalism, for training, and there just is none of that that I can mm-hmm. see in the in the social media. Everybody's an expert on everything. I'm like, no, you're not. You don't know anything. You're yeah. This is,
0: this is the this same. Is, we're back to the same thing, right? Dumb. <laughs> this is really dumb.
1: And you know, I mean, <laughs> it's just like, oh my god
0: but this is interesting because it is like what you what you were saying is that we don't want anything too hard we want a happy life but happy there's an equivocation these days because happy is happy when, when we say we want to be happy and healthy that's not what B- buddha and socrates and all the rest and rumi they want us to be happy and healthy they just want us to be truly profoundly happy and healthy and they're saying that that's going to take some passion It's going to challenge you. It's going to feel threatening. That's the other meaning of dangerous wisdom. I want to stay away from anything that's too hard or too deep because it's threatening to to the comforts that I have in this life, and that's part of the magnificent bribe that that the capitalist system gives you. Look, I'm going to give you a Keurig coffee machine and a Tesla, and and you can turn on Netflix, and you can order stuff, and it'll show up at your door. You're like a magician. And all you have to do is shut up and not think too hard, and you be happy and healthy, <laughs> and you miss the deeper health if you, which which
1: is what a true education demands. Well, you know, this was this was part of the Esalen history. This sort of it was an anti-psychiatry movement, is what it was. And the the basic idea was that health, or in your case, happiness, is really just a um, a coordination with whatever the social system is saying. That that to be healthy, happy, and and wise, as we put it in our 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 um, easy speak, it's just to be, to say and think whatever the culture says and thinks, and that that by definition cannot be wise, and and will not lead to happiness. It will actually lead to the opposite direction. And but that again is a very it's literally countercultural to this day to say those sorts of things. Um, but I, I think that the counterculture had it right, and I think there was something basic about that. The, the, there's a downside to that, which will take us in a whole other direction. Maybe I won't even bring it up. But I mean, there is a you know, mental illness is a really tough thing, and um, I'm not talking about that. I'm not. I'm just. I'm not. I'm not going. I'm not. That isn't what I mean by health and happiness as being superficial. I mean, there there are people who yeah. suffer horribly from from conditions and and states that are just just not this um, but this this notion of happiness I think uh is is usually pretty superficial,
0: yeah, yeah, and the culture is taking advantage of that because if you feel if you experience some of these uh states so first of all, the culture created them, and we don't attribute it to as a consequence of the system, we say, I have depression, I have anxiety. And then, worse yet is if you if you have the depression, and the thing is that your your soul is calling you for instance, to pursue the super or to truly help the world, but you feel that it 's i can 't do it. you are going to feel happier if you do something that you think you can accomplish, even if it 's that it 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 reduces you to much less of your potential but you I feel that I can do this, I feel that I could go to Home Depot yeah. every day and or whatever.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess what I would say to that is, you're not even asking me what I think. Of, I'm just blabbing. But, mm-hmm. you know, because of my non-duality, um, it doesn't really matter to me that I've had these experiences or not. And mm-hmm. and I, I'm pretty dull, Nikos, when it comes right down to it. I'm spiritually dull. I'm a dullard. Um, but it just doesn't matter. Because mm-hmm. I share in the same Basic non-dual nature as people who do have these experiences. I don't. Yeah. I don't feel special, but I also don't feel any different. And I, but but see, I think living in that bigger world actually matters, and I think it's yes. what what will remove the nihilism and the depression that we that we that we face. And yeah, and I'll speak. You know, I'll speak to a, a page in the book that that. That towards the end, I talk about um, Rachel Peterson, actually, is who I talk about. And Rachel's a a young woman at Harvard who um, has written about her own psilocybin experiences. And um, I asked Rachel, I said, you know, well, did the psilocybin cure your depression or not? And she said, well, that's what the pharmaceutical companies wanted to know. And she said, the answer is no, that the psilocybin does not cure depression, but it puts the depression in context. In other words, before the psilocybin, you think that the depression is the only room in the house. After the psilocybin event, you know perfectly well that that's just one little room of this immense house. And so the condition doesn't go away, but it it means something entirely different and that's what i'm talking about that's that bigger vision of the whole house or of the whole cosmos we just don't have as a culture as as we both know and i think that's what we need desperately we need this bigger story in which to contextualize our our own sufferings and our own our own little stories
0: yeah the super story I mean of course the, the there, there you have the, again the open question is what happens when you combine the medicines with training from the wisdom traditions that teach you because the the medicine doesn't teach you how to use your mind differently necessarily no. right so I what the experience I had was dependent on the medicine yeah whereas I, I think the you know a contemplative would say, look everything that medicine can do I, I have done or you
1: and you can learn well you can't you really can yeah. And again this is and where I just differ, I just differ with the contemplative traditions. I mean, I just think that's not true. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh-huh. I mean I think sometimes for a lot of us psilocybin is like rocket fuel and the 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 guru or the contemplative teacher can say whatever they want, but it's just not going to happen without the rocket fuel. It's just, it's just not going to happen.
0: And well, maybe. Right. Well, it depends on what you mean. You mean never at all or that for I some, couldn't have for some people never.
1: You think yeah. never. And I I don't think Especially. that I, I, I know that. And the reason I know that is because I've I've read people. Well, Houston Smith said that. You know Houston said, you know I tried for decades meditating and practicing every contemplative tradition I could I took I took a psychedelic like once you know Tim Leary gave it to me at Harvard and boom there everything was and he said, wow this is this is a whole nother thing now he didn't make the mis- he didn't make the mistake of equating the states with the, what he called the trades. He did. Sure, yeah. He didn't see that as the ulti- he That wasn't enlightenment to him. So he was. He would agree with you, but what he was, I think, trying to say is, please don't tell me that your your rituals or your meditation techniques can do everything that the mescaline or the LSD or the the psilocybin can do because it's just not true. It, yeah. it it might be true for some people. Some people can sit down and meditate and boom, they're they're there, right? Some yeah. people can meditate for decades, Nikos, so and nothing happens. They just fall asleep.
0: Yeah. Well, of course, there, this too is a nuanced thing. I mean, there are so many issues. For one, the experience that Smith would have had would have been inflected by all of his learning study and the practices. The second is, of course, it's not easy to find. If you're in a culture where you're not rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, it's not easy then to find a, um, a path that will work for you, and that is part of your whole life. Yeah. Because he didn't start at age five; he wasn't surrounded by images and so on. And if you if you chase many rabbits, you might catch none. So if oh, I tried all these. Well, as soon as somebody says I tried all these different things, I start to think. Well, wait a second. I don't. Why did you try so many different things? If you if you fi- happen to be lucky enough to find a vein of practice and, and teachings that can guide you, I actually do think you you can go further i'm actually though not um against i i really do think psychedelics have a lot of positive potential i think they're being limited by not being integrated with the humanities including the wisdom traditions yeah. i mean i well, think I that people
1: listen i don't have, have, have a me. lot of psychedelic experience either i'm not i'm not mm-hmm. arguing for the use of psychedelics here i you it's just you're yeah. asking me about well how's the method work and well the way it works is you just take people seriously and you like listen to them yeah. and you put their stories together on a common table and you don't take things off the table that you're uncomfortable with or that don't agree with whatever your, your, your conclusions are. Uh, yeah, that's how the superhumanities works and, or yeah. work. And, um, again, nobody, we're not doing that. <laughs> I'm, yeah. You and I are doing that right now, but, but generally that's not how it works in, in, a university or college or or, or institution of higher education, we restrict the human to a very small sliver of itself, right? And we we pretend that that's the full human being. And of course it's not. Mm Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that limitation is, is, the thing about that limitation, too, is that it keeps us addicted to the pattern of insanity, because if I, I mean, we're, we've become physically dependent on the, the very way of life that is degrading the ecologies that we depend on, and if I don't know my own superness, I'm more scared to, to leave it, because I don't know if I'm strong enough, right? Like, what, will, what, will, what would life be like if I had to leave this thing that I'm so used to that provides me with everything,
1: And maybe, you know, this is, you know, Alvin Schwartz taught me this. Alvin was, he's no longer with us. He was a Canadian um, writer who uh, wrote Superman and Batman comics in the 50s and 60s. And he later wrote two memoirs based on Tibetan Buddhism and Superman and Batman. And his argument, Alvin's argument was, uh, or position, was that actually we need Clark Kent. We we need to be Clark Kent. And yes, yeah, Superman can come flying in at, at moments that, you know, we need, we need Superman, but generally we don't need him and we don't want him. And it's not, it's not useful. <laughs> and, you know, it's way better to be Clark Kent. And, you know, so Alvin, he really pushed that by the way. And I was like, yeah, Wow, that's quite an argument, and but it's truly really stuck with me over the years. And um...
0: yeah, yeah, I, it is an interesting way to think of it. It's, uh, of course, another way it, it, to think of it is that we just we could get rid of Clark Kent if if the Superman was really the way Superman is, because there's the, 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 Otto Rank right tells us that the, the defining issue: why does Superman help the world? It's not because he has superpowers it's because he decided to be a superhero and that's what superheroes do and of course you know he could have been a supervillain he could have just stayed Clark Kent and never put on the or then you have examples like batman and uh, like you i don't feel like i'm even batman i'm hong kong fu at best right <laughs> so but 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 the idea is that there too the the intention the ethical intention makes the super person what they are And it also helps to create the kind of world in which we live because we could all just see each other's superness. There's this
1: other, yeah. There's this other wonderful moment in Alvin. He, you know, again, he wrote two autobiographies, and one, one on Superman and one on Batman. And the one on Batman is called A Gathering of Selves. And there's this wonderful moment in Alvin's autobiography where this voice tells him that he has to become Bruce Wayne. And Alvin says, Well, I can't become Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne's a fictional character. And the voice answers back, that's okay, so are you. <laughs> and it's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. you know I so kind of pulls the rug right out from under you. and I guess that's what I'm trying to say is it's okay, it's okay to be you because you're not you anyway. I mean it's just you're you're the same non-duality I am. um
0: yeah, um, there's an anthropologist who wrote something similar about this, um he was talking about this uh, going to to meet this shaman. And he he found out that sometimes a shaman, when they become a shaman and the spirits come and, and, and give the indications that and it happened to this shaman that they were they were had been born male, and this is this is like decades ago, had been born male, but the spirit told them that they had to live as a woman yeah. In order to be a shaman, and that they were actually very unhappy about it. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't want to have to do this, but that they had to. But they did it anyway, and even took a husband and and lived like that. And that it, you know, just if that's what the spirits tell you, then that's it's like being told, yes, you're going to have to be Bruce Wayne. I don't want to do that. I mean
1: <laughs> It's like um, a lot of the um, the children who remember previous lives. You know, they, there's a lot of gender stuff that goes on in those stories, and you know, you have. You have women in a past life becoming men in this life, and vice versa. And it's it. It reminds me of there's a song called uh, "I Am My Own Grandpa." Have you ever heard that? No. It basically, what happens is this son marries this older woman, and the father of the son marries the older woman's daughter, and so they they crisscross, and somehow the the guy becomes his own grandpa. And I, I think of reincarnation models that you know do similar kinds of things they just totally mess up uh lineages and 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 our sense of identity and i, I think that's very healthy actually i think that's yeah. that's what we need but we again we don't have we don't have anything like reincarnation models in at least western um theistic culture i i know there's yeah. a lot of communities of immigrant or or stable communities now that do but um um I, I i i think we need those actually
0: yeah. Well, I want to end by by recommending the superhumanities to everybody. And then maybe we could also in the spirit of uh of taking looking at experiences that really just seem to demand that we take them seriously. Can you can you just plug your other two books that you wrote with experiencers? Oh sure. And, um, yeah. I can certainly endorse one of them. The other one I'm looking forward to reading at some point. So but, I
1: I did these intentionally by the way because I wanted to write books with experiencers. One's with Whitley Strieber, the science fiction writer and author of Communion, which I think is the finest abduction account we have, actually, to this day. <clears throat> it's called The Supernatural, three words. It came out in about 2014 or so. The 16. It When is it? 15? 16. Oh, 16. It's basically just it's me writing a chapter, and then Whitley, and then Jeff, and then Whitley, and then Jeff. And it's just kind of a back and forth between us. And it's the, the the idea of the book is the study of, well, the humanities has something to say about your experiences, Whitley, and you have something to say about the humanities, so let's see where that goes. And then the other book I wrote after that, it's called Changed in a Flash. I wrote it with uh, a woman here in Houston named Elizabeth Crone, and it's on her near-death experience. She got She was struck by lightning in 1988 and had a whole series of near-death experiences, and then a sort of parapsychological uh, abilities. And the first half of the book is all Elizabeth talking about her life and her NDE, and the second half of the book is Jeff commenting on that life and the NDE from the perspective of, of what we do in, in the humanities.
0: Yeah. And that one is interesting because my understanding is part of w- what really calls us to take the experiences seriously is the fact that she was emailing her dreams to herself, right? And so she had timestamps sh- showing that she had seen something and describing the email, and then seeing it in the news.
1: Yeah, and 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 it really comes down to whether you believe Elizabeth or not. Um, you know, I actually I actually got one of my computer scientist colleagues to go to her home. And he ran a bunch of forensic um, uh, he ran some forensic software on her computer. And basically, the conclusion of the forensic analysis was that he couldn't determine that she was telling the truth, but he also couldn't determine that she was not telling the truth. What had happened is she had changed computers so many times that her computers naturally cut off the the back computer language that would have been required to determine whether she had actually emailed herself at this time or not. Um, And, you know, he was the computer scientist was just really honest about it. He says, look, we can't tell. We can't tell one way or the other, but we tried, we tried. And I actually have had experiences with Elizabeth. She emailing me at a particular hour about an event that she then learns about later. So I, I have no, no doubt that Elizabeth is telling me the truth. But I I do recognize that it's that that physical proof eludes us to 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 be blunt about it.
0: Yeah, as, as is sometimes the case, as, or often I seems more often than usually
1: not. the case. Yeah,
0: is, I mean sometimes we have really good data, and I just did an interview with a neuroscientist who was who reviewed a lot of this data, and you cite people who review the data that we have some compelling data, but. So the experiences are there to be taken seriously, and the question is how we move forward, and that's part of the super story. The super story will help us move forward. I hope. Well, and
1: those two books are very much about okay. I'm I'm taking this these experiences as goads or calls to think. Let's let's do it. Let's see how this works.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's this has been really awesome. I wish we had more time, and maybe we'll have you back again. I'm yeah. Really no, I'd love it
1: to it come so back. I'm I'm sorry, I can't do this longer. We. We actually have an attic fan expert coming in a few minutes to look at our attic fan which is just toast and it's okay. it's a very <laughs> bad scene very, and it's very very hot here by the way so we need it we need we need the attic fan
0: oh my goodness
1: well good luck with that
0: and thanks to all of you for joining us i again recommend jeff's books the super superhumanities the supernatural and the last one uh, again change, was change in change, a flash change in a flash you can find those wherever books are sold And if you have any questions, comments, reflections, stories of the supernatural, send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.